Okay, so we need someone who will read um, Shushan's bamboo stick and woman's comment. I will, Kim. Thank you. I can find my glasses. Okay. They're Case right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Case 43, Shushan's bamboo stick. Master Shushan held up a bamboo stick and showed it to the assembly saying, if you call it a stick, you oppose it. If you don't call it a stick, you deny it. Tell me all of you, how would you call it? Wu Min's comment. If you call it a stick, you oppose it. If you do not call it a stick, you deny it. You cannot say anything and you cannot say nothing. Speak, speak. Holding up a bamboo stick, to mandate the killing or the giving of life. If you are entangled in opposing and denying, the Buddhas and ancestral masters will beg for their lives. Okay. Okay, and now we'll sit for five minutes and I'll ring the bell and then we write for five minutes. Okay. I'm gonna share something that I got this morning for my first teacher. And it connects to this. Um, it's about right speech. Speak kindly, speak truthfully, <clears throat> only say when it will be beneficial. Never go on the battlefield. Don't be argumentative. Arguing is not right speech. Being of benefit isn't about winning. So there's a seems to be the same conflict in the koan, doesn't it? Especially with woman's comment. Are you guys there? Yes. Yeah. So can you expound on that a little bit, Kim? I don't, I'm not sure I understand what you're saying. Well, how, how does it compare? Uh, it's it's talking against the dualism that either either it's this way or that way. So it becomes an argument, whether it's in your own mind oh. and you have to hold both. Right. Uh, you know, we talk about it as small mind, big mind. So in small mind, it's a stick and big mind. It's not a stick. If you were to take the thing apart, you'd never find stickness in it. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. And, um, but it, we, we expend so much energy trying to decide is it a stick or not? And whether it's within ourselves or with, with, with our uh, soulmate, you know, either way. <laughs> and yet and, you have to, um, you have to call it something, <laughs> do you know? In, communi in communicating, it's we're being challenged here. Tell me, all of you, how would you call it? It's um, so it's interesting. You're right, Kim. It's empty, but at the same time, um, we use words to communicate with one another. But I think it's just not being fooled by what the word is. <laughs> so last week. The same teacher sent me something, and I can't remember what it was, 
but I sent him kind of an argument against it. And he simply sent me back what he had sent before without any comment. And I don't know whether it was a, a error on his part, whether he meant to comment, whether he, it was a mistake, but I kind of took it um, as he was trying to say something, like I'm not going to argue. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it makes more sense right now in terms of this thing of right speech. And I even, when I got the right speech thing, I thought, oh, he meant this for me. So I made up this whole story now. First, the, the email with nothing in it, and then the, the is a thing on right speech. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. It was, this is, this just reminded me what you were saying, this right speech thing you posted is um, in uh, Ajashanti's book, uh, Falling into Grace, he talks about when he was a little boy sitting at the dinner table with all the relatives and suddenly having this insight that everybody was having some sort of form of, their conversation was like um, a slightly argumentative, like trying to push their, their point of view. Somebody would have a point of view about somebody something and somebody else would have another one. And he noticed that everybody was had a point of view and everybody was trying to convince the other person of their point of view. <laughs> which it was a pretty insightful thing for a seven-year-old. Uh, oh, know. I see, a seven-year-old, yeah. He was seven. Yeah, and he said he just noticed it was just that the way people were communicating was that everybody had uh, an idea or a belief, and then everybody seemed to be trying to convince the other one of their idea or belief, you know, trying to get them to understand it or to believe it or something. It, it, you know, he said it was like an undercurrent. And how old is he now? Oh, Adyashanti? No, no, the boy. Yeah, the seven-year-old, that was Adyashanti oh, when I he see. was the boy. I yeah. see, yeah. It was him, yeah. yeah. But that's, um, you know, the whole thing about arguing. I think it's very common. I think most people in conversation are usually having some sort of a, at least in my experience, a little kind of push-pull thing happening. And there was a, the comment about winning too. Yeah. That's a, a big part of it. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. why we like people who agree with us all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, feel, we feel that, uh, yeah, they're supporting it. Well, Stephanie, Cody, and Nancy, you haven't said anything, except Nancy, Stephanie said a little thing. I just feel that um, maybe um, I uh, forgot his name. Uh, Shoshan? Yeah, Shoshan. Yeah. He just tried to tell his, um, his disciple to look at things in a different thing, um, dimension instead of like get caught up, up in the name of the thing. Because most of the time when we look at something, we immediately we, we name it. We call it by name and then on up the thing that we know about that instead of like really directly like, um, interact with it. 
So that's what I think. Yeah. I uh I guess from the koan, I took it as uh like you have a thought, but you can't uh articulate that thought correctly. Like you you know the word, but it just don't come out correctly. So you know it's I guess it's best to just sometimes, because uh, like my wife tell me all the time, because I forget what I'm trying to say. You know, she like use your words. <laughs> I'm like, uh, I can't remember which one I was I was looking for, but that's that's kind of that's kind of what I got from it, though. Stephanie, do you want to say something? Nope. Okay, should we read? Sure. Okay, so let's read alphabetically. So it's Cody, Gail. Kim, Nancy, and me. Okay. All right, all goose comment. Sean Masters are up to their old tricks again. Yet desperate times calls for desperate, desperate measures. I invite you to look inside yourself and find out what, what it is that binds you. If you don't call it a stick, how would you call it? Are you not scrambling for words and language at this very moment, trying to label and define what is troubling you? In naming it, you are already bound in duality. You have the unique ability to look inside yourself and be both subject and object of yourself. In objectifying yourself, you may see you're this or that kind of person. You formulate all kinds of stories about yourself, even though deep inside, you know that such narratives may not define you. Is there an ever-present observer inside that simply escapes your understanding? No matter how hard you try to find it, to find out who you are, this observer is inaccessible, unreachable. The more you look, the more you become alienated from yourself. The dualism you feel makes you ill at ease, gives you angst. It's like a light tower that shines outwardly but can never shine within. So it's always dark in the center. This fundamental existential alienation runs through all of your experiences. Everything you experience outside reminds you of the fact that you don't know who you are inside. This is what is meant by, if you call it a stick, you oppose it. I, I just wanna say that at the very end of my writing um, about this koan, I just ended up with what am I? That's what I wrote. <laughs> yeah. It's like quicksand, isn't it? And there's no getting out of it. The deeper you, the more you struggle, the more you get caught in the quicksand the more you struggle with like, yeah. is it this or that? 
Yeah, I mean, the more you look inside, the more you don't find what you're looking for. And then your mind thinks that you've made a mistake somehow, that you should be able to find something that is you. And what if it isn't a mistake? Oh, I think it's me now. What's worse is that since there's no way to know who you are, you seek outside affirmation. You ignore the existential <coughs> dilemma inside by turning your back on it. Instead, you focus on acquiring things outside. This is the meaning of, if you do not call it a stick, you deny it. Praise and success, fame and fortune, peace and prosperity. These are sufficient to conceal your fundamental existential question for most of the time. But there are moments <coughs> when even these fall apart. When they do, the void or emptiness you feel surfaces. These moments are potent, not so infrequent after all. Perhaps someone you love dies perhaps living in a time of socio-political instability will do it. John Master Susan Shenian lived in such a time. The social-political instability of dynastic succession did not so dynasty had just begun. The fate of Chan and Buddhism at large was uncertain. The focus of the empire was on defending the trust of the Western Kingdom of the Tangus. In Northwestern China, Buddhism lost its former patronage of the elite ruling class. Later, as Buddhism regained the patronage of the Northern Sun and they either used it as a way to legitimate their own self-interest of political rule, or saw it as literary remedy that broadened their own knowledge and as elite contemporaries. It's dilettante, Nancy. Oh, thank you. Dilettante. Do you know what that yeah. is, Nancy? No, I don't know. I don't know. Um, um, it's, it's a young woman, usually very wealthy, who, let's see what, what it says for, uh, who kind of is uh, pretty flighty, a person who cultivates an area of interest such as the arts without real commitment or, or knowledge. So pretending, but not really understanding. Um, and it's I usually, usually, Usually women. I've never heard men refer to as dilettantes. But... Oh, I have. Oh, okay. I definitely have. Yeah. Okay. It's not it's not a gender word. It's it's a description of either a man or a woman. A it's it's not complimentary at all. Oh, it, it just means that you dabble without any real commitment, you know, or interest. Mm -hmm. You know, you kind of know a little bit about everything, but not much. But nobody wants to be a dilettante, do they? Oh, I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> Julie, uh, so it means that this, this period, people trying to be a child master, but not really know it. 
Mm. Right. They understood Chen as Wenzin Chan, a literal Chen. Mm. They fancy their own. Okay. Sorry, go ahead, Nancy. Oh, no, no, nothing. Okay. They fancied their own literary outpour of Chan poems and Chan art. Chan's axiom of not depending on words and language became a slogan among the literati to support more poetry with sparing words and art that resembled minimalism. In response to the need to gain security and patronage, even Chan clerics themselves produced and compiled numerous Chan literature. Discourse records, gong-on collections, and genealogical histories about itself. Chan became thoroughly entrenched in Winzai or words and language. It was in the spirit that Shushan had to use poison to fight poison. He challenged the very foundation on which the tradition was rebuilding itself through words in this new dynasty. In raising a stick, he tells you not to rely on words and language, but also not to reject them. Yet you are asked to respond. In our own time, we also face socio-political instability. Modern technology has brought us closer, but at the same time, it has also widened the gap between people and distanced us from ourselves. You may have a broader social network, yet you feel deeply isolated. The more you know, you realize how much you don't know, especially about who you are. You ally with those who agree with your view and demonize those who disagree with your own interests. You label yourself as a hero and others as villains, terrorists. Meanwhile, the distance between you and your brothers and sisters in other nations widens. Even Buddhism in our modern age, just like in the Northern Song Dynasty, is used to advance people's own self-interests. Buddhism as a form of self-help, Buddhism as a scientific and rational religion, <coughs> Buddhism as psychotherapy, Buddhism as a form of social justice, Aren't all of these things what modern people are interested in anyway? What role do they have in Buddhism? None. Buddha Dharma is a way to free yourself from bondage, to clearly discern what is at stake. What are all these labels for? <coughs> and the core on this is your attachment towards the language. Of course, Buddhism greatly values intelligence, so in itself, intelligence is not a problem, nor are knowledge and works, and works. The problem is your attachment. You turn everything you encounter into an object of your craving, grasping. For what? You deeply hope that your investment in the outside world will lead you to happiness and peace, away from the void and emptiness you feel inside from not knowing who you are. Over the years, I've observed what people's problems and difficulties come down, that people's problems and difficulties come down to two main issues. The first group of people tend to overanalyze everything, 
creating problems where there are none. This tendency to overanalyze manifests in many different ways. Many practitioners are like this. When they practice very hard, they naturally find themselves in a state of peace, joy, and clarity. However, they generate conflicting thoughts or feelings of doubt or guilt for even practicing well. Or when they are concentrated... Or when they are concentrated, all of a sudden, some kind of fear arises, perhaps a fear of not knowing what will happen if they continue. This fear of the unknown, of uncertainty, spins off all kinds of thinking. What might happen if I continue to practice? What will happen if I get enlightened? Will my intimate partner, girlfriend or boyfriend, wife or husband still recognize me? How should I act in my daily life? Should I quit my job, sell my stuff, give away all of my money? The scenarios or narratives you come up with carry within, within them a lot of conflicting views and vexations. The more you think about a problem or issue, the more you are bound. Because of your ability to analyze or to view an object or a task from different angles, your detail-minded and meticulous ways make you worry a lot. This is the overanalyzing type of people. When there are really, when there really is no problem, they think of one all by themselves. Hmm. The second group of people essentially choose oblivion. They may follow a certain ideology, so they fixate on a particular view of things. Or they have had some powerful experiences of calm. So every time they sit in meditation, they create a kind of void, a blank-minded, stagnant state that they hold on to. The more they excel in doing this, the more they believe that their practice is getting better. This is not to say that they actually don't have wandering thoughts. They do, but they create this blank, not knowing state and zone out. Of course, this has nothing to do with Chan or Zen. These states open up neither wisdom nor compassion. Those persons have simply learned a particular skill of blank mindedness. They call that just sitting or bare awareness or witnessing or whatever. These are, of course, not genuine forms of shikantaza or clear awareness. You know that expression, damned if you do, damned if you don't? That's kind of... Yes. Have you heard that, Nancy? No, not anymore. But you, you understand what that means. Neither way, it's okay. Yes, kind of. That, that's why we practice the middle way, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These practitioners are often under the influence of certain ideologies, some Zen ideals or rhetoric learned from scriptures. They say that vexations themselves are the wisdom, that delusion is itself enlightenment, that samsara is nirvana. <coughs> the, they have vexations, but they just don't recognize them. Their ignorance is their bliss. They have attachments, but they simply deny them. They justify this by saying that attachments are wisdom. 
and that it is natural to have them. Holding up a bamboo stick to mandate the killing or the giving of life. If you are entangled in opposing and denying the Buddhas and ancestral masters will beg for their lives. This verse highlights all these flaws over analyzing and voluntary blindness. Opposing is over analyzing, denying is blank mindfulness. Both have in common attachment in words and language. Both miss what is most important our intrinsic freedom. In the first instance, your ideas continue to flow and you get caught up in a web. In the second, under the influence of certain views, you voluntarily choose not to see any problems. Caught in the web, you kill all possibilities, all of your potential of ever being free. Being oblivious, your problems worsen. As long as your attachments are present, even the Buddhas and the ancestral masters will beg for their lives. This means your wisdom life is completely killed. The good news is that none of these fabrications and props you create, while fun to play with, have any real substance. Just don't give in to either of these tendencies of overanalyzing things or running away from them. That's the practice. Your life then will come to life. Those who just focus on the task at hand often have fewer vexations and simply dispense with worrying over this or that. That is why you engage with a method of practice to see through the veil of your constructs or fabrications of the mind and not be influenced by them. Practitioners, who can do this to slowly free themselves from their own attachments. One time, as a young novice, I remember getting myself into a conundrum, thinking about my vexations. My teacher laughed at me. You're creating a wall again, he said. How do I go through this impenetrable wall, I said. He replied, don't go through the wall, just turn around and see the open space. That opened up new possibilities. There is no wall, you're free, just keep walking. If you stop opposing or denying, what will bind you? Didn't we read something last week about um, about the altar? Did we read something about like people being the altar? I don't know if we read it. I think you talked about that, that you saw every person as an altar. Oh, no, you mentioned that. Um, yeah. And then you talked about it Sunday morning to Steve. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking about that all week. And I, I want to do on Wednesday, when we do our meditation on neutral, I, I asked you about that, Stephanie. But on, on 
uh, meta meditation on neutral thing, I was thinking you could make an altar of all the people you don't have a particular connection with and, you know, realize them as being sacred too. Like maybe taking everything off the altar and then putting those people on. And I just started having that, that vision. Hmm. How much fun that would be. Like the, taking the garbage man and putting him on the altar instead oh, of the, Kim, when you say putting on the altar, what does that signify for you when you place something? Oh, on making, the altar? Ma realizing that person being sacred. You know, it's kind of like the stick. It's like there's the things on the altar that are sacred and then the other things that aren't. And putting, putting the other stuff, all this stuff that's not on the altar, on the altar and taking all the stuff that is on the altar and just putting it on the floor. Yeah, when I, th when I think of bringing things to the altar, um, I feel like I, I'm bringing all my, uh, oh, let's just say all my um, negative judgments and associations about other oh, people. Oh, really? And then I lay them on the altar. In other words, I'm giving them over to, hmm. um, let's say, um, truth or reality or, or wisdom or love or you know whatever in other words because, oh, okay because sometimes i feel like i i can't in the very in that very instant see the sacredness either in myself if i ju i'm judging myself for my reaction mm -hmm. or maybe in the other person if they i feel they you know really hurt me and so for me lay, laying something on the altar is laying that whole messy thing up on the altar for, um, I, you could say the forgiveness altar, you know, <laughs> or, you know. Yeah, I think we're talking about the same thing, but you're dealing with negative things and I'm thinking, dealing with, with neutral things. Yeah, yeah. Because that's where we're, well, where we're supposed to be focusing Nick on Wednesday, uh, the meta practice of neutral. Of neutral? Yeah, things that we neither that we don't have any particular strong feeling about. Yeah. Like the mailman. I mean, you might have a strong feeling about your mailman or male person, but I don't. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> uh, I like, um, you know, when he was talking about the two different ways people practice, you know, either the overanalyzing or the just kind of moving into a very detached, kind of, you know, state. I've, uh, to be honest, I've done both of those. I could see myself in both of those uh, sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I, I um, get too caught up with analyzing in the future and trying to come up with a solution or whatever it is. You know, like today, next week I'm gonna be in California. I have a lot to do. Um, my daughter and her family are coming out and I'm already trying to analyze how the days are gonna go, what we're gonna do, what I should serve for dinner, what, you know, you know, whether we're gonna enjoy Disneyland or not. I mean, you know, it's just this mind activity. And sometimes I bring all that to the cushion and I can do the same thing um, in regards to my spiritual practice too. It's a tendency. You know what? Um... 
Suzuki Roshi called that kind of sitting, a kind of zazen, sightseeing zazen. <laughs> you just got this continuous play of possibilities and things out there and you're just watching it all. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of a way to move, move away from it, uh, I suppose, mm. or to make one little step back, you know, from it. But. Yeah. And, and on the other hand, there have been times when um, I, I go through phases of being in a total, um, how can you say it, uh, no thought at all, uh, kind of a, a sleepy place, you know, where there's really nothing happening, uh, you know, and, and, you know, they always say when you meditate, is there any um, aliveness to it? there should be some aliveness to it. Right. But very often I'll find myself in some sort of a, you know, kind of a dead, I call it resting, but it really is more like, I, I just, I just want to hang out here and not have anything else come in. Yeah. For me, it's like comatose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I really was appreciating both of those um, descriptions. Um, first, I thought I was the first one, and then I realized I was the second one sometimes. Too. Um, yeah, and so there we are. We're back in the, um, what is it? Um, do you call it a stick? Do you not call it a stick? Or say do you something. just let it be? Or do you or just say something? <laughs> You'll say something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is it? Yeah. Maybe you can just go, hmm. 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 Yeah. Well, Guo Gu actually did, you know, modeled what you could do. I mean, somehow he's not uh, clutching on either one. Right. Yeah. So I was interested. I was kind. Of, I've always thought that these were a reaction against against Theragatha Buddhism, and. In, in this one, he talks about how it was a reaction against Chan that had gone bad. And now that I think of it, we read a Chan book um, a long time ago, and I have it right there. And um, there always was this battle with, with uh, keeping Chan on track, and the new teacher would come around and straighten people out and stuff. So that, that seems more reasonable than the people who were, because um, these were the temples they were taking over or occupying or going to and then seeing that they were on the wrong path. Yeah, it's interesting to me how um, these really deep spiritual teachings, you know, get kind of, um, I guess, kidnapped and um, then used for, you know, whatever sort of egotistic you know, ways that humans can come up with to make them think they're getting somewhere or that they have something or that they know something or that they can control other people with it or, you know, it's just. And it know. happens to all religions, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely this egoic sense of uh, separation that moves in that direction, you know, I guess. Um, I was interested to hear how they uh, really got caught up with the Northern Song Elite. 
using uh, Chan to legitimize their own self-interest of political rule. Or, gosh, you know, you think of Christianity and the way it was kind of just in lockstep with politics, you know, all over <laughs> the Christian world, you know. And so I guess they did the same with Buddhism sometimes. Well, that's how revolutionary it was to separate church and state. Yeah, yeah. Because every other country had, there was so much um, mixture, so much one effect in the other. Yeah. In an effort to control people. Right. That's why um, I saw a documentary on the pilgrims um, the other day. And, you know, they came over for political um, freedom, basically, for the way they wanted to practice their version of Christianity. They didn't want the King of England to tell them what, how they should be doing it or whatever. And they were the first ones who basically kind of set up a little um, structure where church was separate from the governing body. Oh, I, I, didn't thought know that. Really, I thought that was really interesting. Um, yeah, they said that they shouldn't be mixed. I didn't realize that came from the pilgrims. So that would well, be in the like the 17th century. Yeah, and it's like 1620, I think is when they came. That's why they wanted to come to the United States because they wanted to, well, you know, they wanted to um, practice their religion, but, you know, they also kind of realized that it shouldn't be mixed in with the governing, governing part, you know, um, which was interesting to me. I don't know, you know, what kind of wisdom that was, but it was pretty good. I had no idea. Well, I, I just wanted to say too that um, uh, Guo Go, I, I liked where he talked about the core of the problem is your attachment to words and language, not words and language in and of themselves. The problem is your attachment. So we have to turn everything into an object. And I guess we do that with our labels, right? Yeah, and we get very attached to our labels. Have you ever had an argument with someone about something where you're both basically talking about the same thing, just it's semantics, different words, but you are very tied to your, you know, the way that you want to say those words, even though what they're saying is the same thing, just in a different way. But it, you want it to be said this way. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> you want to win. Right. Right. Yeah, going back to Aja Shanti as a seven-year-old, noticing that just in a Thanksgiving meal around the table, you know, <laughs> with family members, you know, our teachers. Are we done for the night? 
I feel pretty done. <laughs> okay. Well, happy 4th of July to everyone. Yeah. Same to you guys. And Cody, thank you for your service. Oh, you're very welcome. My pleasure. That's right. 4th of July. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Well, okay. you know, we, yeah, we could get into what Independence Day really is, you know, too. Um, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um, I'm not going to be here next uh, Monday, maybe, because I'm going to California on Saturday. And yeah, I'll be, I'll, I'll be there. there. I'll be in Phoenix with my mother. That's right. You're traveling, too. Yeah. Uh, are you are you going to go see uh, your son after that or did you? No, he's in California. I know, but you were going to go to California at some point. I not, not in September, the end of September. Or September. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I'll see you guys in two weeks. Yeah. And in two weeks, I think on the 18th, I'm going to be. Um, That's right. You're going to be traveling. I'm going to be traveling on that day. Yeah. Where are you going? The 19th. To Illinois to, to visit my, uh, my father-in-law. It's 102 and a half. <gasps> and a half. <laughs> and a half. In December, he'll be 103. Wow. How's he and doing? I, oh, he's doing fine. Nothing's wrong with him other than, you know, little, uh, little things like his hearing aids buzz or things like that. Wow. And then I looked up... Um, my, after my mother died, my father had a girlfriend and no, no, this was another woman. The girlfriend died, but I looked up this, uh, this good friend of theirs, my parents, and, and she, in 2019, she was 104. And, oh. and then um, I couldn't see that she had died. So she would be 106 now. Wow. So amazing. Because I'm sure that if she died, she was a doctor and, and pretty well known. So I'm sure that if she had died, I would have found an obituary. So she's 106. That's pretty cool. Yes. She was a neat lady. She said the biggest problem, health problem in the country is people aren't getting enough sleep. On that note, I think I'm going to go get ready for bed. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.